Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. Today, national leader Judith Collins on Auckland's borders, MIQ and the future of the pandemic response. I'm not the Prime Minister. It's not me that's failed the country. Then, are class divisions in New Zealand getting worse? And good public transport is critical for a low emissions future. But in regional New Zealand, the options are kind of shabby. We also want to be able to use the bus. We want to be able to leave our cars at home. But actually, it's really hard when the bus timetable is only every couple of hours. We'll have that story for you shortly. We did not look like a credible alternative. Those are the words of national leader Judith Collins, reflecting on her party's result at last year's election. In the 12 months since, National has continued to languish in the polls, even as the government has faced intensifying criticism for its handling of the pandemic. Yesterday afternoon, I sat down with Judith Collins and I asked her if, according to National's plan, on December 1st, Auckland's border restrictions should be ended. Yes, as long as they get the rapid engine testing in and as long as they get the ICU beds ready, they need to get that done. But as I've said before, we're not the government. We've given them the plan. They've now adopted quite a lot of our plan, uh, but there's still a few more things for them to do. Get those things done. We should be ready for 1st of December if they really stop sitting on their hands and get it going. Would all Aucklanders be able to leave the city? Well, it seems to us that if we get the sort of rates that we're talking about, the 85-90% uh, double vaccination rates, there's no reason why Aucklanders shouldn't be able to leave the city. All Aucklanders, including unvaccinated Aucklanders? Well, we've said that we should be able to operate like that. But again, rapid antigen testing so that people can test themselves um, and get a result in 15 minutes, that's the sort of thing that should be available. You can do it now in Australia, you can go and buy them at the supermarket, should be able to do it here for some reason. In this country, the government has not planned for this. So if you were Prime Minister, right at this minute, in two weeks' time, all Aucklanders, regardless of vaccination status, would be able to leave the city? Well, if I was Prime Minister in two weeks' time, um, I would have actually had all these things in place. So people would not be worrying about it. I'm asking it about your plan for now, though. No, well, the plan for now is to get that rapid engine testing out now, make it available, um, and to make sure that we had the uh, vaccination rates up. But let's be fair, uh, we gave the government a plan and we've been asking for vaccination rates for a very long time to be much higher. It's actually, I'm not the Prime Minister, it's not me that's failed the country. But you want to be Prime Minister, which is yeah. why we will scrutinise your plan. So in, in the month after Auckland moved from Level 4 to Level 3, daily cases increased 500%. Under your plan, how many daily cases should we expect a month after ending lockdowns on December 1st? Well, we should. We, we will no doubt have more cases. We how understand many? that. Well, we can't say exactly how many because, of course, people don't have readily ready access to testing facilities outside of the main cities. So it is really important that we have rapid engine testing. I have to say this, you know, 15,000 times. I'll continue to say it. The government needs to get a plane load of rapid engine tests in, get them right throughout, and then people can check themselves. So I think at the moment we have. Um, it is very important. That we go back to the fact that actually we're not the government and actually we're not the ones who slowed down, had the worst slow vaccine rollout in the whole of the developed world until August and Delta was here. And then we only had 20% double vaxxed. So we've been calling for this all year. You've made the point about rapid antigen testing so we can leave that to one side. I want to know, a month after you end those regional lockdowns, how many daily cases should we expect? 
Well, we're saying that you can't actually know how many there are, uh, but we would expect at the moment we're getting about 200 cases that we are aware of. And as we know, we are finding in places like Taranaki, we found mm. today in Taupo, uh, there are cases that maybe haven't been tested before because people either are a bit frightened to get tested mm. or else they simply are not close to it. So we don't know exactly how many, but we are saying you might expect on modelling that maybe 200, 300. It may be a bit more than that. But what is also how, how really important... Tell us more about that modelling. Well, we, well, what we've seen from the government's own... Well, the real modelling, which, which is what's happening right now, we don't have to think about what might happen when we're already seeing what's happening. And what we're also seeing in places like um, New South Wales, for instance, where they've opened up a lot more, is yes, they got a spike in uh, COVID cases, but now that spike's come right down. But the difference with New South Wales is that you still have regional borders in place. Your plan explicitly allows for the regional border around Auckland to be lifted. So if we're getting 200 cases a day, on the modelling you have just quoted to me, how many cases would we expect nationally Nationwide, a month after lockdown. No, we're just talking about. I'm talking about the real life. What we're seeing now. So, so how many so, would we expect? Well, I think we'd expect at least 200 uh, for a while, but we'd also expect a spike. We'd expect so, that to so come what up. Was this, what would the spike be? Well, it, I, I can't tell you exactly what's going to be, but I can tell you that we would expect a spike, but, and we would expect it to come down again as we've seen overseas. But I, I just want to be really explicit on the modelling that you are quoting to me here, well, I'm, because I'm looking at the. Sorry, I should be saying what we're seeing from real life experience. So what, what does the National Party's modelling tell well, us? Well, no, what we're saying is we're not the modellers. We're saying we're using what we've seen from the Doherty Institute. We're using what we're seeing here in New Zealand. We, we do not believe that there would be 7,000 cases a day, which is what uh, Sean Hendy so, so was saying. Well, we believe that it will go up by a few hundred and that it will come down again once we get... It is absolutely important we get everyone double vaccinated that we can mm. and that we are testing on a constant basis. Okay, but I, again, I'm, gonna, I'm really just going to keep on zooming in on this point. I want to know what modelling you are quoting me here because you've got a plan, you've got a grand plan to reopen Auckland, you want to drop those regional borders, you want to let unvaccinated Aucklanders travel around New Zealand, that's what you've just said to me. Yeah. So I want to know what the impact is on case numbers nationwide. You've said you expect a spike. Look. How much we would the expect spike? there will be a spike, and we expect there will be some hundreds of, of cases. We're also very aware, though, Jack, that right at the moment, while we're in these lockdowns, ten, first 10 weeks, 100,000 people did not get their first special assessment, did not get their scan for cancer, did not get treatment. Mm -hmm. So we are. So when you look at those numbers of people with COVID and who might get COVID, we also need to look at it and say the health system at the moment has shut down for a whole lot of New Zealanders. Mm. So, so what will be the impact nationwide on hospital capacity once you allow unvaccinated Aucklanders to travel around New Zealand from next month? Well, I think if you've got the whole of the country, uh, let's say 90% double vaccinated, which is what the government is aiming for, which we think is a, a great number if we, we get we that. We won't be there in a month. December 1st well, is your we're date. Saying, yes, but we've also said we've predicated that on rapid antigen testing. We've predicated it on the ICU units being um, available. We've predicated it on these um, caveats and pillars. What's the impact on hospital capacity? Well, obviously, the hospital capacity will go up in terms of ICU units, but we don't know if anyone's crossing a border who's vaccinated suddenly has COVID. We know, we know if you are unvaccinated and you get COVID, you're far more likely to have symptoms and therefore you're far more likely to go and get treatment. You just can't give me any numbers here, I'm which is... 
I'm not going to give you a hypothetical because number one, we don't have access. Plan. I mean, it's, this is the thing, though, right? It's, this is your plan. This is the December first National Party plan is to remove those barriers. And what does it say about your policy making if you cannot, for a decision of this magnitude, a policy that affects people's lives and livelihoods? Tell us how many New Zealanders are going to be catching we COVID or what it'll do to our hospitals. Well, what we know now is what it's doing to New Zealanders to not be able to get their first cancer assessments. We understand what's happening. We've got 10,000 people a week are now being put at risk, unnecessary risk, because they can't get treatments for cancer. COVID is not the only only issue in the health system it is a big issue it'll be even worse but we have we also know that the government doesn't share its modeling with us the government doesn't provide that so we're working off what we can and what we've said very clearly is you don't just open up you get your rapid engine testing in place and you might say well we've moved past it. no 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 we're not when new zealand is so far behind everywhere else in the world and all the government needs to do is to approve it rapid engine testing is effectively banned in this country Okay, let me ask uh, about vaccine mandates. In September, you publicly opposed vaccine mandates in the workplace. Now you support vaccine mandates. What does it say about the coherence of your leadership and of your policy making that you haven't had a consistent position on something as fundamental to this response as vaccine mandates? Well, I don't think you're correct there, Jack. I'm very, very clear. I don't like concepts like vaccine mandates in workplaces, but I'm very aware that they are going to be necessary and that they are necessary while we don't have rapid antigen testing in place, while we don't have the vaccination numbers that so we need. on September 22nd, when asked about vaccine mandates, you said, quote, I think that's a bit too tough. Well, I think it's very tough. But then again, it would... Well... At that stage, we hoped the government would bring in the rapid antigen testing. So when you're talking about school teachers, nurses, others, I think they should get double vaccinated. I'm double vaccinated, I'm sure you are too, but I'm also very aware that if you have tests every day for people, you're going to pick up COVID in the community. And I personally don't like the concept of mandates, and nor does the Prime Minister, and you'll recall she said that too. But we're now at a stage, because they've failed on all these other um, pillars of what we, we believe is necessary, that we do need to have it for a period of time. But it needs to be an end in sight for this too. You can't just have a mandate forever. And we've also believed very firmly this needs to be based on health and safety measures and uh, what we know about the, the virus. In September, National was calling for purpose-built MIQ yes. facilities, which would cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Now you are petitioning to scrap MIQ. Which is it? Oh, it's both, actually. So you need MIQ facilities for people who come in who have got uh, COVID. You need MIQ facilities for people who are not double vaccinated who come in um, and uh, so may be at risk. you let people who aren't vaccinated back into New Zealand? Well, if they're New Zealanders, they should be able to come back into New Zealand, but they'd have to go into MIQ facilities. Because right now, you've got people coming into New Zealand who are not double vaccinated. Um, and they're being tested before they get on plane, they're being tested in the MIQ facility, but they are actually in New Zealand. So that's where, you know, we would say you'd have them for those people. But you'd also not need to have, for Kiwis or people coming in who are double vaccinated, who are negative before they get on a plane, who are negative afterwards, you wouldn't have to have MIQ facilities for them. National's promising to repeal Three Waters legislation yes. and return the assets to local councils. So we've seen sewage in the streets of our capital city. In Havelock North, of course, people died. How is the status quo okay? 
Well, the status quo won't be improved by taking all the assets off local councils and putting them into four new regional bodies, one which is so bizarrely named or set up that Nelson and Marlborough are going to be in the North Island. Yeah, um, people are dying. People yeah, die in Havelock North. We, we have sewage in the streets of our capital city. But none of that's got anything to do with the structures around it, has it? What it does it do... It has everything to do with the capacity of local councils to manage these assets as it stands. Well, no, we believe very firmly that if you look at the Auckland model, where we have uh, Metro Water, they have done generally a very good job around water. And even the complaints around uh, the drought last year and water being able to be used in gardens and things, and we didn't run out of drinking water, but also that was also around the access of water from the Waikato River and the topography but, of But it's great if you're, in, if you're in a region where the council has the capacity to actually manage these assets. It's not so great if you're one of the people in Havelock North who was poisoned by the water supply. Um, they were poisoned by sheep faeces in the water, and it was all to do with the pipe. Who was in charge of maintaining that pipe? But that's why the we supported. Well, that's why we supported the regulatory authority to actually check the water quality. We supported that. Um, but what we're not supporting is this big take everything into four big regional um, authorities. There are ways f to deal with those issues, though, and that's why we're encouraging the local councils to work together to actually team up and to make sure that they deal with these issues. Why haven't you put a plan forward? Oh, well, Christopher Luxon, who's our spokesperson on that, has been working with councils on it, mm. and at the right time he'll be putting that forward. But we're very clean. Isn't now clear. the right time? Again, sewage in the streets. Oh, there's, look, I think, I think most people would get the irony of this. You're talking about centralising water services to um, an area like Wellington where they can't even sort out their, their sewage. Um, I think, really, that a lot of local people would be, would be saying to us, actually, we've paid for those water assets, we're not being compensated for them. And then we have the, the Minister, Nanaia Mahuta, saying that they're going to employ 7,000 more staff and suddenly we're going to have uh, less rates? I don't think so. But at the very least, they are identifying a problem there. Well, I think a we lot all of know people that there say is, Well, you've offered us no alternative. No, the alternatives are yeah. to work with the councils, but also to look at funding mechanisms to help that infrastructure get built. National hasn't hit 30% in a single poll this year. If the government is as bad as you say it is, why isn't National more popular? Well, I think we've been through COVID. It's been a very tough year, obviously, and COVID last year was a particularly tough year for us. But ultimately, uh, we have to stay focused on the issues that matter for people. So we've put out a COVID plan. We've put out a getting back in business plan. Last week, we put out an education plan. And you, uh, you and still we've got, haven't broken 30%. Well, we're actually moving in the right direction. And we'd also understand that... And according to which poll? You were, at, according to the Taxpayers Union Curia poll this week, Curia used to be the National Party's polling company, you're at 26% in yeah, the party com vote. We're coming up. We're coming up from that. But also, if you look at the centre-right and you look at the centre-left, the gap between the centre-right and the centre-left is, is actually So why is David Seymour so popular and you're not? Well, I think one of the reasons is, is that, um, number one, is that David is able to just talk about a few issues, but also I have to deal with 
uh, all the issues as well. And I think too is that... Yeah, um, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's, you know, the ACT Party is able to uh, just focus on a couple of things that they need to. They're a, a small party and they're not likely well, they're to ever actually lead Almost as big as National government. these days. No, not, not at all. And I think too is that it's really important that we stay focused on what, ha what matters. You don't hear from David's other MPs, not like we do. We have a full team. I let our MPs mm. get out and um, basically do their job. That is something that means that I often have to give, um, you know, give our MPs opportunities. Let me ask this then. I, I see that in reflecting on the election last year, you said that New Zealanders didn't see National as being a credible alternative. The polls have you almost exactly where you were on election night. So what evidence do you have that New Zealanders today see you as any more credible than they did for that massive defeat? Well, what we're seeing now is we're starting to see things move in the right directions because they're what seeing this. What evidence do you have, though, well, of that? Well, because number one, we're mostly electorate MPs who are out listening to people, but also because we are. That's, that's, the, that's what the prime minister says, and she gets criticised no, for that. But she, that's the, that's no, the I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the prime minister visit. I don't even know if she visited electorate the last three months, so I don't think that's fair. Um, but also, what we're seeing is that people wanted to believe everything the prime minister and the government told them, because why wouldn't they? Wouldn't they want to believe that we could eliminate COVID? And what we're now seeing is that people are starting to see that actually what the Prime Minister said was wishful thinking, is that elimination had to go and we needed to move to a containment and suppression strategy. And that's what we're seeing now, we're moving to that. But the point is, is that for us and what we're hearing is people are worried about the fact there's no plan around the Auckland border, they're worried about the fact there's no plan to to actually keep, get the kids back into school in a way that they can be confident they won't be out of school again next year. They need to have those plans, and that's why we're putting them out. So I say, Jack, we're two years out from election. You just watch the space. We're going to keep moving in the right direction because we're focusing on things that matter. And the more we focus on those things, the better it's going to be. That is National Leader Judith Collins. Coming up, in a week where angry protesters forced unusual security measures at Parliament, what's the risk that protesters turn to vandalism or violence? Protest outside Parliament might only have represented a minority of New Zealanders, but it exposed an ugly and even threatening opposition to Aotearoa's public health measures. Auckland Councillor Josephine Bartley didn't need any reminding. She has personally been the target of threats and intimidation while helping with the vaccination rollout. After an incident last week, she woke to discover a security guard positioned outside her home. Josephine Bartley is back on the front lines today, helping with a mass vaccination event at Mount Smart Stadium in Tāmaki Makoto. Tēnā queer. Thanks so much for being with us, Josephine. How is that event going? I've got to be honest, it looks wet. <laughs> Kia ora, Jack. Uh, lava to everybody out there. Yeah, look, this is how community rolls. It's raining, it's cold, but already cars are lighting up out there here at Mount Smart at our Megavax Pacific event. So that's just how we are as community. We all come together 
and we're vaccinating. Pacific Leadership Forum, South Seas Healthcare, Basifika Family Health Group, our church leaders, we've already finished our prayers. So many prayers today, but yeah. It's really We're good to see. We're just doing it. Yeah. No it's really, really good to see, Josephine. Hey, so for people who perhaps aren't familiar with all of the work you've been doing and, and don't know about some of the things you've experienced over the last couple of weeks, could you, could you tell us about some of the pressures and intimidation that you have experienced in assisting with this vaccination rollout? Okay, thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been facing a bit of a bit of backlash regarding supporting the the anti um, the vaccination program but however it's not just me there's so many others that are receiving the same kind of online threats and abuse our pacific providers are getting threats and, and online you know hate really on their facebook pages our young people you know from their own peers so i i give it over to our young people our pacifica young people i'm hearing about bubblegum youth and you know, their friends that are that are anti-vax, vaccine hesitant, and they're pushing through with supporting vaccination events in the community, all of our young people. So some real leaders are emerging through this pandemic, mm. and it is people from our community. So I give it over to them. You know, what I go through, everybody says, you know, it's to be expected, you're a counsellor, that's what you get. But the stuff coming through from the kind of extreme anti-vax is scary, really scary stuff. So, you know... People should not be trying to stop other people taking care of themselves, their families and their communities by getting vaccinated. Just using their own words back on them, freedom of choice. Leave these people alone to use their own freedoms to get vaccinated. For people who perhaps aren't quite familiar with just how extreme some of the sentiment has been, can you give us an example of what you personally have experienced? People saying threatening things to you in the street? Oh yeah, sure. Um, you know, I don't want to talk like it's flippant, but, you know, things like calling me scum, uh, you know, that they'll just vandalise my car instead, uh, you know, that, that we're a disgrace to our race, that we're exploiting our own communities by putting on these vaccination events with incentives, um, injecting... I don't even want to talk about the negative stuff, but injecting, you know, the antichrist in your arm, you know, things like that. That's 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 what mm. we're all facing um, by supporting the vaccination rollout that we're going to burn in hell, you know, things like that. But yeah. that is not what we focus on. We focus on saving lives. Yeah. That this vaccination, these vaccines, will save lives. Yeah, that's a really important message. Maybe, maybe then tell us how you work through that in the face of all of those threats and intimidation. How, how do you and the teams that you're working with try and put that to one side and continue with your mahi? I think, you know, like everybody here, even though it's raining, I mean, we'd much rather probably be at home watching Netflix in our bubbles with our families, but everybody here is here out of love and out of service. Mm. Tautua, alofa, that's what motivates us. And that's why we come out here, we do these vaccinations, vaccination events in the community every week. And it's not just me, it's all of these people out here, these Fife hours, these church leaders, the Civic Leadership Forum, you know, our providers, I think they're, they're like machines, they can just mm. keep going. So many vaccination events every week, every weekend, late night, you know, even the schools are getting involved. Everybody's mm. just going hard to get that vaccination rate up, not just because they want to get the numbers, it's not about the numbers, it's about saving people's lives. So, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. This is how we keep going, by being around each other yeah. and supporting each other. 
Josephine, over the last couple of weeks, hundreds of people in your community have been isolating at home with COVID-19. What have those people been telling you about the experience? Yeah, I think, you know, it just seems to me like uh, people don't realise how widespread COVID is and how COVID is actually in our communities. I'm not sure why, but people seem to think that COVID is, is, is within a certain boundary, within a certain uh, phone code in Auckland, but it is out there. Um, I have people in my area that are self-isolating through COVID. How do I know this? I know this because I deliver food parcels to those households. Uh, so, you know, it is it's out there and people are self-isolating at home as opposed to going into MIQ. They don't want to go to MIQ because of the negativity they've seen around the experience. So they don't want to put themselves and their families, their children, through that. So they choose to stay home and self-isolate, which again is a concern. Because what is the support that is going around them while they're self-isolating with COVID in their households. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. For the last two weeks on Q&A, we have identified some problems regarding people who are isolating at home, people who've been sent the wrong information by health authorities. And this week, Health Minister Andrew Little accepted that the system was not up to scratch when we began the home isolation system. What is your view on that? Yeah, yeah I, I'm glad the Minister said that because that's the truth. Um, you know, what we learnt from this vaccination rollout is if you really want to get to the hard to reach to our diverse communities, then you give it over to the community to do. Uh, that's where we see the success of things like these vaccination events, was once the Basifika providers got involved, our communities got involved, then you saw the numbers go up of the vaccination, because community knows how to reach community. I would say do the same with the families that are self-isolating. Get our community providers, our Pacific providers, Māori providers, health providers, get them in there to work with the families. That's how you're going to, you know, yeah, support have a more effective more. response. Yeah. And, and, and so what would Absolutely. you do? If, if, if community organisations have greater involvement, what sorts of things would they do to support people who are isolating at home with COVID-19? I think it starts off even from the first approach. You know, like I'm hearing from families that, that what they got, what they received when they found out they had COVID was a, a welcome pack, you know, a pack about having COVID. You've got to do more than that. And ideally, you've got to, you know, it's how you approach the family, how you talk to them, who's doing that approach. Ideally, it's going to be, you know, if it's a Basfika family, ideally Basfika, because it's, you're already scared because you've got COVID. A lot of people have COVID, they won't come forward with it because they're scared. Fear is a very dominating factor in this whole thing to do with COVID. Mm. Some people have it, they don't want to know they have it, they um, just, they don't want to go to MIQ. Yeah, mm. it's, well, Josephine, it's just very scary. So the first approach is most important. Yeah. Josephine, I can see that fear is not a factor for you. Thank you so much for your time and for the great work you and your community are doing there at Mount Smart Stadium. That's Josephine Bartley. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Up next, what school did you go to? What job does your dad do? What suburb do you live in? New Zealand has always had a class system, but a new ultra-wealthy class is pulling further away from the rest of us. Hoki mai anō. 
Currently, someone in the wealthiest 1%, so about 40,000 New Zealanders, has 68 times the net worth of the average New Zealander. Are you okay with that? Should we be okay with that? In his new book, Too Much Money, researcher and author Max Rashbrook says wealth disparity is unbalancing Aotearoa. Max Rashbrook is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Morning. We like to think of Aotearoa New Zealand as being an egalitarian society, but has that ever really been true? Well, I, I don't think we've ever been a completely egalitarian society, but certainly between the 1930s and the 1980s, New Zealand was a more egalitarian country than most of the developed nations. Um, what's happened then is that we've had the world's biggest increase in income inequality um, and we've seen increasingly large wealth disparities. So the wealthiest 1% of New Zealanders own literally a quarter of the whole country. And what I think is also happening is that that increased wealth is allowing people to buy a whole lot of advantages, you know, better access to housing, better health care, um, better social networks and political influence. And that's leading to really significant social divisions that are being passed down through the generations. And, you know, so that idea that we're a classless society, I think, starts to fall apart at that point. Yeah, the, the book focuses quite a lot on, on the development of New Zealand's class system and some sig significant changes on that front. Tell us what it's like then for that top 1% today. What, what, what does the top 1% look like in a classless society? Well, I think the, the first thing you can say is that they're increasingly um, dominant. Um, research that I've done that I talk about in the book shows that in the 1990s, say, um, the rich list uh, wealth was equivalent to about 6% of GDP. Uh, it's now worth 20% of annual GDP. So the wealthy are becoming increasingly dominant force. Um, it's, they're increasingly uh, dynastic. Uh, but like on the TV series Succession, you know, there's a huge amount of wealth that's being passed down um, through the generations that's giving uh, the children of wealthy people all sorts of unearned advantages. And those wealthy people also are living a life that's increasingly distanced from other New Zealanders, I think. Um, some time ago, I interviewed a, a relatively wealthy person. And when I asked them how much they'd inherited, they said, well, not much you know, millions of dollars, not tens of millions of dollars. Um, so if you live in a world where inheriting millions of dollars is not much, you know, you're obviously living in a life that's sort of insulated from the realities of ordinary New Zealanders. Why is that a bad thing? Well, I, I think one of the things that a society inherently relies on is some kind of social cohesion. You know, it's very hard to come together and confront the problems that we all face as a nation if people are leading profoundly different lives. Um, when people become sort of segregated from each other, they lose their sense of empathy in each other, that knowledge of how the other half lives. They become less likely to go out and sort of assist people from different walks of life. Mm. And I think even democracy is threatened in a way. Um, you know, if people have got so little idea about what it's like for the rest of the country, how can they sensibly cast their vote or make submissions on laws that are going to affect everyone in this country. But if it's only the top one or two percent, why does that matter? 
Well, I think one of the things about inequality is that you have to see poverty and wealth as connected. So one of the big factors that shaped New Zealand in the last few decades is that if you go back to the 1980s, uh, workers, you know, people who get wages and salaries, mm. used to get about 70% of corporate revenue. That's since fallen to under 60%. Uh, the effect of that, that decline in company revenue going to people who get wages and salaries, means that the average wage is now $14,000 a year, less than it would have been if workers had maintained their share of company revenue. Now, where is that company revenue going? Well, it's going instead to the people who own companies, so owners, shareholders, people who've got equity stakes in businesses. So that increase in wealth for people at the upper end is coming at the expense of the average wage earner. Okay, that is a really critical point. So, so what you're saying is that, uh, is that for the top 1%, you know, they've experienced this incredible growth in, in, in wealth relative to other classes. Is, is the same thing, does the same thing apply for the middle class as well as for people who are perhaps on the lower end of um, incomes? Yeah, I think so. I think in a lot of ways we've got, got quite a squeezed middle class here in New Zealand. I mean, a lot of people watching this will know just how hard it is to, you know, to stay ahead of their bills. You know, the fact that um, wages aren't as high as they should be, the fact that they're heavily reliant on things like working for families, um, you know, to prop up their incomes. And what I think they also quite rightly see is that you know, they comply with all the rules, you know, so they pay all their taxes and in, indeed have very little choice about that. Whereas if we look at the, the very wealthy, um, research that Inland Revenue has done shows that if you take people who are worth over $50 million, nearly half of them are paying less than 10% of their income in tax. So a lot of wealthy people are paying less tax than someone on the minimum wage or someone in middle New Zealand. And I think middle New Zealanders rightly sense that that's not fair. So to what extent can the middle class benefit from a meritocracy in New Zealand? Well, I think the, the problem with the meritocracy, you know, this idea that, that positions and jobs and things are allocated on merit, is that firstly, you know, the conditions for that to be true don't really exist. I mean, when I look at richer and poorer children, you know, they get totally different starts in life. Um, you know, figures that I've compiled show that wealthy parents spend five times as much on the education of their children as poorer parents do because they can afford to. You know, and they can afford to buy houses in the grammar zone, which doesn't necessarily get you a better education, but it starts to build the connections with the children of other wealthy people. And then when you look at um, university recruitment, for instance, uh, it's disproportionately from the wealthiest schools. So over a period of time, over a number of years, if you look at Canterbury's engineering program, for instance, 2,000 students over a period of time, just one of them from a decile one high school. So there are these huge advantages um, for the children of wealthy parents. And at that point, I think it's impossible to say that there even is a meritocracy because some people, some children, have such a head start in life. So what do we do about it? Well, I think there's a number of things that we need to do. Um, and I would really focus on those things that are the engines of opportunity. Um, so things like, I mean, I'd be really in favour of a kids' KiwiSaver scheme. 
for instance, you know, so that every child is enrolled in KiwiSaver at birth and the government is doing things to help poorer families save for their children so that everyone hits adulthood with at least some kind of sort of wealth stake behind them. Um, I'd also focus on things like really pouring money into low decile schools to support the teachers who are doing such amazing work there. I would be looking at things like, could we move to having a free healthcare system, you know, so that everyone can get the healthcare they deserve with no financial barriers. And then in order to fund all of that and to ensure that wealthy people actually are pay paying a fair share of tax, you know, rather than paying less tax than people on the minimum wage, you know, I'd like to introduce some kind of tax on wealth or inheritances or property or land, something along those lines to ensure that they're contributing uh, a fair amount to those sort of collective goods that we all rely on. There will be people who say that what you are advocating for effectively amounts to punishing success. What's your response? I don't think that's true because if you look at people who are you know, aged care workers, for instance, you know, who are looking after our oldest and most vulnerable people. They're doing incredibly important work, but they'll have almost no wealth, you know, because their salaries are so low that they have very little chance to save. Um, and on the other hand, if you look at, you know, wealthy people, you look at people on the rich list, um, a lot of the, the largest number of rich list fortunes have come in what's called the fire economy, so finance, insurance and real estate, um, which, you know, and I think it's hard to say that people in those industries are, you know, are doing work that's so much more important than caring for our oldest and most vulnerable people. So actually, I think at the moment, the levels of wealth that people have, the rewards that the economy offers, is massively out of whack with what would actually be fair. And what is the risk if you introduce something like a wealth tax or a land tax or inheritance taxes, that sort of thing, that you drive some of that capital right at the richest end of the scale overseas? I think the risk of that kind of thing is, is generally overstated. I mean, not least because, you know, if you were going to go to, you know, any other developed country, you would pay more tax on your wealth or your top incomes. I mean, if you went to Australia, for instance, you'd face a 45% tax rate and you'd be paying tax on your capital gains. Um, you know, furthermore, countries that have comprehensive wealth taxes like Switzerland don't see, you know, a huge sort of exodus of wealthy people. Mm. That stuff, those sort of things always get raised. You know, they're made as threats, but then generally they're not delivered on. And the other thing is that, you know, actually I think what is important for where people live, and this applies to the wealthy as much as to anyone else, is actually living in, you know, a country that's safe, that's got good infrastructure, you know, where there's a good healthcare system, where there's a really highly skilled workforce for you to employ. And those are all things mm -hmm. that are funded out of taxation. So actually I don't think we would need to worry about those kinds of empty threats that are made. All right. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. That is Max Rashbrook. Max's new book is Too Much Money, How Wealth Disparities Are Unbalancing Aotearoa New Zealand. After the break, it's all good if you want to take the bus in Grey Lynn or Newtown, and not so much for people in regional New Zealand. There's so much focus on the need for buses and public transport in big cities, but in regional centres we need it too, we want it too. We want to 
get out of our cars and be able to get around. Kia ora te whanau, welcome back. Public transport issues in our big cities are always in the headlines, but now the provinces are asking, hey, what about us? A Whanganui regional councillor is appealing to Transport Minister Michael Wood to get better public transport services in and between our growing regional centres. She spoke to Fena Owen. Whanganui, they find a way to get around in this town, but like most places, the car dominates. Horizons Regional Councillor Nicola Patrick wants the government to get on board with her crusade to improve public transport in the regions. Morning driver. Morning, how are you? Good, thank you. Look, I wrote the open letter to make it really clear to the Minister that in the regions we are looking for great public transport as well. There's so much focus on um, the big cities and the need for better bus services. But out here in cities like Whanganui, we also want to be able to use the bus. We want to be able to leave our cars at home. But actually, it's really hard when the bus timetable is only every couple of hours. It just doesn't make it convenient. And for some people also, it's not very affordable. Where are we now? We're still in Gonville. We just passed the old um, swimming pool. We're in Gonville. Gonville. Yeah. We're gone from Gonville. No, we're, we're still we're in Gonville. Gonville. Yeah, no, Gonville's sort of... Yeah. So how much support did you get from other territorial authorities when you wrote the letter? Oh, I've been so pleased with the support. We've got signatories from Northland to Bluff, from every single region in the country has signed up. So they have the same concerns in their towns, obviously? 100%. And even some of our towns, even in our district, they have very limited public, service, uh, public transport at all. Don't go thinking, this is an empty bus, perhaps there's no demand for more of them. Transit have kindly put on this Q&A special. So Nicola, you really are Whanganui's number one transport advocate, aren't you? Well, I don't know if I'd take the top spot. There's someone even more passionate than me I'd love you to meet. Across town, we've gone underground to meet Whanganui's number one public transport fancier. You must be Anthony. That's me. <laughs> Welcome aboard the Jerry Hill Elevator. We're a public transport service and we've been running here for 102 years. You may have heard of Anthony Tonnen. He's a musician and recently won the tender to run Whanganui's Jury Hill Elevator. Did we mention he's a fan of public transport? When I realised that instead of driving around a rental car um, around Europe or the United States, I could actually hop on a train or a good bus, um, put my suitcases down, and do some work, do some reading, simply do some thinking without worrying about my safety um, or where I was going. Um, it was a real revelation. And I guess I thought that that wasn't possible in New Zealand, but I since have found out that we used to have it and it would be pretty simple for us to have it again. So here's us in 1947, and you can see that we were part of a tram system. So we were an interconnected network of trams. Whoa, there's a rattle. That's a rattle, Is that sure. normal? That's normal. Absolutely normal, yeah. yeah. Okay. In 1950, Whanganui replaced its trams with buses. I even have a photo of Bono on one of those buses. You don't? I do. In Whanganui? In Whanganui, yeah. They're electrified. 
This is one of Anthony Tonnen's railway songs. He laments the demise of regional trains, but holds out hope they'll be revived with interconnecting bus services. In 1991, cities were no longer allowed to be involved or subsidise their public transport. That was handed over to regional councils. And overnight, the smaller cities like Palmerston North, Invercargill, Gisborne and Whanganui all lost their bus systems. So private bus companies have picked up the work, but subsidising their services is the problem. It's just really hard to only rely on ratepayers to do it, so we're looking for the government to step up and help us. So you're looking to budget 2022? Yes, we are. That budget is going to be big for climate action, and we don't want the regions left behind. We can't just have great public transport in our biggest cities and nothing else the rest of the country. Thanks, driver. Thank you. Have a Thanks, good day. You too. That was lovely. Oh, so good. A special bus just for Q&A, eh? The power of public broadcasting. After the break, the outgoing privacy commissioner on what he thinks are the pitfalls of the digital age. And we actually get overconfident and start treating individuals as if they are the sum of their data. Kia ora, welcome back. The Privacy Commissioner, John Edwards, is moving to Britain to become the United Kingdom's new Information Commissioner. It's seven years since he was appointed to the privacy role, a period that has covered significant developments in digital technologies and the Christchurch mosque attacks. Before he flies out, I asked John Edwards what scares him about the future of big data. Well, big data has a lot of potential to inform policy decisions and to improve business, uh, but it's really important that um, that's done in a responsible way, that we remember that big data is made up of lots of little data, you know, that we don't forget the humanity. Otherwise, we can take um, rules that might apply generally to a population, you know, if you're thinking of trying to target and segment a, a population and, and target certain people, and we actually get overconfident and start treating individuals as if they are the sum of their data and the sum of our assumptions about what those attributes constitute. And that, that's what worries me, is, is that sort of overconfidence in the ability of algorithms to, uh, to tell us, give us insights into, into complex human individuals and human interactions. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Uh, unpack that idea for us a bit more. Why algorithms, you think, sometimes don't act in the best interests of our society? Sure. I mean, th there's a lot bundled up with this, but uh, th there's a lot of work happening in artificial intelligence, feeding um, these programs large data sets to try and predict behaviours or anticipate uh, what's going to happen if you change certain variables. The problem can be that um, you hardwire uh, existing inequities and biases into these kinds of algorithms. I mean, one really good example, and it's, it's not particularly about personal information, but an experiment in, in Boston, Massachusetts, where they um, issued an app that worked off the accelerometer in your phone, right? The idea was it was so sensitive it could pick up uh, when you drove over a pothole and then the, uh, the, the, the roading teams could be dispatched automatically to the places with the highest concentration of potholes and fix the roads. Problem was, the distribution of the smartphone technology uh, was not evil acro even across that community. Uh, and it was the more wealthy neighbourhoods that had a higher prevalence of smartphones. 
So they were the ones who, uh, who got the greatest attention to their roads. And the poorer communities with the uh, more analogue phones and didn't mm. without this technology, their problems got worse. So the technology there is very smart, but it's actually widening a gap and it's, it's exacerbating an existing inequity. So we've got to be really careful about how we embrace those kinds of uh, technologies. Is that something that happens often? Are there unintended consequences to what seem, at you know, first glance to be beneficial digital progressions? Yeah, well, there are. Um, and there are examples of, you know, just blatantly racist algorithms um, sort of hardwiring those kind of community dis institutional racism, for mm. example, into um, sentencing algorithms in the courts in the US. And we've seen, you know, many studies uh, along these lines. So, you know, I guess, Jack, one of the issues uh, as we reach a sort of level of maturity in some of this digital uh, technology is that the technology uh, is available at a retail level. Uh, so people can buy stuff off the shelf uh, and apply it without necessarily thinking about the implications and without necessarily thinking whether it's fit for purpose. Mm. This can have quite adverse consequences for people. John, I want to throw a gripe that is common among some of my colleagues to you. Do government departments in New Zealand hide behind the Privacy Act? Uh, I think government departments in New Zealand um, take seriously their responsibilities. They are the, the custodians, the kaitiaki of personal information about all of us. And we haven't necessarily consented to them giving it. We, you know, it's mm. mandatory in many circumstances. So I think, I, I, I do understand the frustration of journalists, but it's right that uh, government agencies should, you know, think long and hard before releasing personal information about citizens who may or may not have had a choice to have that interaction, who may or may not mm. uh, want to uh, entrust the government with that information, uh, and who certainly um, may have strong views about whether it's released to journalists. What have you made of the High Court action taken by the Final Order Commissioning Agency against the Ministry of Health to try and access patient data with regards to the vaccine rollout in New Zealand? Well, I think that um, that uh, proceeding has been fascinating, uh, and it's really um, uh, explored an area that we've been keen on uh, looking into here, and, and that's concepts of um, privacy in, a, in an indigenous sense, and the extent to which um, uh, tribes are entitled to access information from government in order to um, uphold treaty rights. So we're really pleased to see uh, the courts addressing this issue. Um, it's complex uh, and it's, it's multifaceted. Uh, so there are individual privacy interests. There, there will be, we know, people uh, in the Ministry of Health database who don't want to have uh, any um, uh, calls from uh, Te Whanua Waiparera or others. Uh, and, and we know also that there are health providers uh, in those communities who know if they were only if they were only able to access the names and addresses of unvaccinated, they would be able to identify just the right kuia or person who's trusted by that family to go around and uh, mm. have a chat about vaccination. So it is a fascinating issue. Um, it's quite vexed. There is not one voice in Te Ao Māori on this. I mean, we have the Urban Māori Authority, the Whanaora Commissioning Agency, mm. uh, asking for the information on behalf of Wider Māori, but there are many iwi uh, who, um, who take a different view. Mm. What are the implications, do you think, what, once 
all of this is through the wash and we see how it ends up. What are the implications for whatever is decided in this instance? Well, I think um, taking a longer view, uh, there's a piece of work that we're interested in, which is um, uh, working collaboratively with Māori to look at this concept of Māori data sovereignty. You know, we, what we call the Privacy Act in New Zealand is in, in many parts of the world is called data protection. Mm. And I think it's a legitimate question for Māori now to ask, well, who is this data being protected from? Who is it for? Uh, and, you know, do Māori have a right to ask for access to information uh, that is held uh, as kaitiaki by government on their behalf? Mm. John, after the Christchurch mosque attacks, you called Facebook, quote, morally bankrupt pathological liars. In the time since, has that view changed? Uh, Facebook is a company that um, I think has displayed uh, a, a, a very questionable business practices and a deep disregard for many of the, um, uh, the safeguards which you would expect to be placed over personal information. The rest of that tweet that you've quoted, Jack, uh, I mean, that's a value-laden statement and, um, and it was hyperbole, but, you know, the rest of that statement, uh, if I can recall, referred to Facebook's platform being used to facilitate genocide uh, in Myanmar, uh, being used to um, uh, stream suicides mm. and rapes and assaults. Um, and, you know, those are facts. They've never denied those things. And we've, we've recently seen testimony... Uh, in Westminster and in Congress uh, from whistleblowers uh, demonstrating that Facebook knew of uh, the harms that were being uh, perpetrated by the platform and failed to act. And that is consistent with uh, what we saw, I think, uh, with the technology and the platform being used uh, on March 15th and afterwards. Do you have a view as to whether the likes of Facebook should be regulated and, and what would that regulation look like in an ideal world? Well, Facebook is regulated. Uh, it's regulated in uh, every country in which it operates. Uh, I don't think, you know, I mean, I think there's an increasing consensus that there needs to be more rigorous regulation. Mm. There is, uh, at the moment, something of a fracturing. So my area of data protection is, and privacy, it, it sort of almost focuses on the, uh, the individual's experience. But what we see uh, in the way some of these platforms are operated to cause harm is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is more in the line of a public good. You know, the online harms, the algorithms that nudge people towards extremism. It's difficult, in fact, in, in the regulatory framework here in New Zealand uh, to take one individual's experience. Say, uh, say, you know, up to 2017, for example, uh, Facebook allowed um, uh, advertisers to target as a um, market segment Jew haters. Right? Now, if you uh, send advertising to that person to nudge them towards even more extreme behaviours and even more extreme conduct, um, that individual is unlikely to make a complaint to my office that their personal information has been misused. So the regulatory model uh, isn't well suited to the business model. Mm. That is outgoing Privacy Commissioner John Edwards. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And mihi kia koutou karede. Thank you for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te ra wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Thank you for the support of New Zealand on here.